Thank you. It's always a delight to return to Amsterdam. So I'm going to talk about the stage that happens to most startups after they build a product. And the reason I like talking about this is because we live through this epidemic of startup advice. Everyone is telling you shit that you have to do with your company. Uh, what we see is this sense of a... Sorry, my monitor is not mirrored with, uh, with what the slides are, which is a problem. I'll keep going, and hopefully the slides will catch up with me. Uh, what we see is this aha, this sense of everyone is telling you constantly you need to find product market fit. And there's so many guides and guides and guides about how to hit product market fit as quickly as you can. And what we consistently see is no one tells you what happens next, right? There is no shortage of this shit that just keeps piling on and on and on. And the first thing I'd say is that we started in 2011, as you heard, with four people and no customers. Today, seven, I guess, eight years later, we're over 600 people. We've got five offices. We've got 30,000 customers. And it just wasn't all because we had a product. Uh, there was a lot more shit you have to get right to get anywhere. And simply having a product won't get you where you need to get to. Specifically, when people talk about product market fit, the idea that your product will, will be bought and loved in a market for a certain price point and it'll work, usually what they, uh, they kind of distinguish is the idea of you, your product, and your market. And I think marketing is probably the skill that most people get most wrong. So this is the whole, if we build it, they will come, they will somehow Google the bizarre SEO term that we've paid a lot of money for, and they'll find our product and start buying it. And what, what could possibly go wrong? Well, the mistakes that most people make are at the marketing stage. This is you know, when you have built a product that is useful. For some reason, people make more mistakes here than they do anywhere else. The first of them is they don't solve from the inside out. They try to solve from the outside in. And what I mean by that is they take a sort of typical funnel like this, and they look primarily at, they think, our product is perfect. All we need is just more people to look at it. Uh, so they focus all their efforts at the very, very top. Uh, and they look from the outside in. And what that means is they, they think, we need to grow a big, big audience for our product. That's all we need to do. Everything else is perfect, right? The danger with this is it's, it, you know, it's tempting because it's short-term responsive. I can launch advertising for your product tomorrow, and you'll start getting people on your website. Uh, it's easy to experiment with. I can bid on multiple different ads, and that feels like progress, right? Uh, it, can be, it can be high impact. And now, if you give me $10 million, I can definitely get you some customers. Uh, and there's whole industries and tools here that will help you. But the biggest point I have to make to startups all the time is that if your customers aren't happy, if they're not engaged, if they're not profitable for you to acquire, and if they're not sticking around for a long time, then the last thing you want to do is get more of them. Put another way, if you have a really leaky bucket and you've got a hose, don't try and fill the bucket. Fix the bucket, right? And what fixing the bucket looks like is starting at the end. Are your customers actually happy? When they try your product, do they stick around? Do they get value? Are they happy to pay a price for your product? If they are, that's great. Then you can start working back. Are your visitors happy? Do they understand what your product does? Do your ads work? Do they get you visitors, etc.? It's much more long-term focused, cheaper, and actually the right attitude to start from the bottom and work up, even though every force in your body will tell you, we just need to turn on Google AdWords or Facebook ads or whatever. You have to resist. 
when you are doing your marketing, uh, and this is like when you're like saying what your product does on your website, it's really important that you speak to a customer in a language that they understand. Specifically, you have to market the thing that they're looking for. And a question I always ask startups is, are you building the thing that you sell? And are you selling the thing that you build? If those two are out of consistency, if, they're, if you're trying to sell one thing but building another, you'll find yourself in big, big trouble. Your ads won't work or your product won't work. But it, certainly, they can't both work unless they're the same thing. And what your customers are buying has to be the thing you're selling. If you think you're selling a project management tool, but all they're buying is time tracking, you're going to waste a lot of money building shit that no one wants. So the way you resolve this is literally talk to your best customers. You, for Intercom, to get this right, we actually talked to a whole group of customers. We talked to new customers, people who just signed up, people who just quit, people who are on trial, people who are shopping around but not yet ready to buy, our happiest active customers today, and also people who've slipped away. They are all great sources of information. They tell you what you sell that works and what you sell that doesn't work. They tell you the ads that are bringing in people for whom you have no product, etc. And from this, we distill down these ideas of what are Intercom's core offerings. Uh, and we can produce these job boards, which basically explain, here is what people are shopping for. It's not about holistic customer support. It's about help me fix support today. And when we hear that, that changes what we build. So it's really, really important to understand what it is your customers are trying to buy. And then when you understand that, you can then ask questions like, who are our real competition? And why should people switch from our real competition to us? For every product out there, you have three types of competitors. You have your direct competitors. Uh, these like, direct competitors in the inner circle here are the smallest amount. Typically, they say the exact same thing that you say. If you're selling project management, they're selling project management. And they're running similar sounding ads with a similar website. And it's without doubt, the two of you are competing head to head. McDonald's and Burger King, right? Same job, exact same job, exact same solution. Then there are secondary competitors. Some people use file storage, and some people email themselves files. And they're not, email is not competitive with Dropbox in, in the most literal sense, but people use both products to do the same thing. And then there are jobs with conflicting outcomes. This is when you can't literally subscribe to the philosophy of both products. Uh, so for example, you can't be a, a happy, passionate customer of McDonald's and a happy, passionate customer of Weight Watchers. Something is broken in that environment. Similarly, you can't believe that like, clean code is incredibly important and run a shitload of A-B tests on your website. They, they, inevitably, you end up in some sort of conflict where it's like, we have to make a choice here. When you know who your competitors are, your real competitors, you're then faced with a challenge. You have to get them to switch. Now, there are four things you should know when you're trying to get a competitor to switch to your product. The push, the pull, the anxiety, and the habit. So the push is what is getting them away from their current product. Why are they even shopping around? The pull is what's attractive about you and your product. The anxiety is what are the hesitations? What are the things they don't know? And then the habits are what do they still kind of like about their existing solution? And those forces generally are push, pull, habit, and anxiety. And what's really useful there, like for us, like push might be people hate their existing live chat. Pull might be people love how our messenger looks, et cetera. But you have to document these down. Your challenge in your marketing is to make the green forces big and the red forces small. If that happens, then a switch will happen. 
If people have more reasons to switch to than to stay away from, they will switch in a certain time frame. That's how it happens, right? The other thing you have to bear in mind, and this is especially for the, the very product-focused founders out there, because uh, I have this problem all the time, is there's this phenomena called the 9x effect. And that is, there is what a customer thinks they have, as in how much they value their current solution, and there's how good their actual solution really is. And that generally, the difference here is what we call inertia. People hate switching. So, and then on the other side, you have founder ego, which is, here's what you've actually built, and here's what you think you've built. Right? Everyone loves their own children, and they think that they're, they're better than everyone else's. Okay? It's just the way it works. So the 9x effect is that when you're asking somebody to switch, uh, you think it's a really obvious question. Why wouldn't you switch? My thing's amazing. Your thing is shit. Duh. Right? But when they're looking at it, they're saying, I love where I am right now, and your thing looks kind of shit. Why would I switch? And that inconsistency is generally the root of the idea why your product needs to be that much better than the competition. You have to be that much stronger to overcome all of that inertia and overcome your own ego as well. A third piece of marketing is just to understand how people will shop for your product. And generally speaking, I, I break this into four ways that people will come looking. Some people have a problem and they don't have an opinion about the solution. They'll search for like whatever the problem is, right? Some people on the other extreme, they know exactly the thing they want. And there's a spectrum here. Some people say, hey, I'm switching away from you know, one tool and I'm looking for a comparative tool. And some people say, I'm looking for a solution in a certain space. So for us, this is like, the problem is sometimes people say, hey, website conversion isn't good. And then all the way down to, I want an intercom. And like, that's what we experience, the full spectrum. And we need to advertise against every single one of these, right? If you're selling project management software and you're only running project management software ads, you're only speaking to the category shoppers, the people who know that they need a project management tool. You're not speaking to the people who say how to get a team organized. That's a problem. They just don't have an opinion that you might solve it. You're also not speaking to people saying, I want to switch away from Asana or whatever, right? That'd be a competitive search. You need to make sure that you have a plan for each of this type of customer. And you, again, you need to have a reason why they'll switch, that whole four forces thing. And then lastly, and this is again where people over-index, is uh, the types of tests you run. I am so uh, frustrated when I see founders who are like, obsessing about A-B tests with a really small volume of traffic, like as if that's going to somehow solve all their problems. Like they have 100 visits, seven of them sign up, and they think if they can just get eight, they'll be perfect. It's rarely the problem. But when I talk to people about testing, I always try to encourage people to like, uh, Try to take big swings, not small ones, right? You're not going to become a billion-dollar company based off turning your red buttons green or your green buttons red. That's not where the actual the magic lies. So we've learned all this shit before, right? Big buttons outperform small buttons. Buttons in the right place outperform buttons in the wrong place. Buttons you can see outperform buttons you can't see. Fucking quit it with the buttons, OK? Uh, don't get sucked into the black hole of like tiny optimizations. So, before you run an experiment, ask yourself, how much could this actually work? And if it could work, uh, like say, 1% improvement, how long will it take us to see that and be, be sure it happened? And is it worth the wait? So if you're considering we're going to go from a blue button to a, blue, uh, a, a red button or whatever, it might take you only two hours to run that test, but it might take you 68 days to get the results because your traffic isn't that big, right? Facebook can do it in an hour. You can't. 
Uh, and as a result, you'll spend 70 days to get this really small improvement. But if you're willing to take a bigger swing and say, let's try something fundamentally different, it might take you longer to try something fundamentally different. But because it's so different, the difference, if it, if it exists, positive or negative, will be dramatic. And as a result, you'll, get, you'll take bigger bets and get faster results. And that is a much better way to test. You were in, if you were testing in the small things, you're generally assuming that you're perfect and you're onto the last mile optimization. You probably are not. So getting product and marketing right are like the first steps to product market fit. And we found ourselves there, I guess, in 2013. And then all this other shit happened, right? Uh, business gets hard. And, uh, and I guess maybe I'll just talk a bit about what this scale stage is like. And in the scale stage, you've uh, if, quite a variety of challenges. One of them is like how you roadmap, because you used to roadmap off like gut and intuition, but at some point you realize that's not going to cut it anymore. We actually need to get good at this, right? It doesn't scale for the founder to be this distant genius who has ideas and descends onto the product team every now and then. You need to have a method. Even if it did scale, it's not a good idea, because you're no longer exposed to your customers the way you once were. You're probably distant from them. So you have to develop this roadmap process. And that means taking in new inputs into your roadmap. You've now current customers, you've sales, you've new ideas, you've voice of uh, you've people who are quitting your product, uh, you've your competitors and what they do. These are all the new things that you need to bring into your roadmap. And you, how you allocate your time across these is really important. Because some of them, like say new ideas, you need to have the right to try a new idea. You need to make sure that things are pretty stable and we know what we're doing before you just throw out more new shit. You need, uh, on the other side, some things like product health, if that's a problem or if churn is a problem, you need to down tools and work on that problem. So you actually don't get to pick your roadmap as much as you used to, and that's a good thing. Secondly, I'd say you need to evolve how you build because you now will have ultimately like two different styles of work, and that's how we've found ourselves working in Intercom. You have iterations and new ideas where you're like, let's try something cool. It has to be OK that it could fail. It has to be OK. Uh, because it's going to be, if it succeeds, it'll be a great new addition to the company. And that's the type of innovation that you need to have. And you need to have a certain way you work on those things. On the other hand, you have problems in your product you need to address. And you don't really get the opportunity to like, explore the world with these things. You have people saying, we're quitting because we can't see a report over the last 90 days of X. The thing to do there is to build a report over the 90 days of X, roughly, right? Like as in, obviously, don't build them a faster horse entirely. But generally speaking, you need to like, listen to your customers and solve their direct problems. You shouldn't really be making a lot of mistakes here. You shouldn't really be pushing the boat out or trying to differentiate. You should have a really good methodical way of saying, if we're losing customers because we lack an integration of X, we need to make sure that that happens, while at the same time having this other mode, which is we can also innovate. And the other piece you'll have to find is every bit of product work you do needs to be uh, ROI positive, or at least have a plan to get there. So how will this work help your company? Will it help us close more deals, sell at higher prices, convert more customers, keep more customers? What is the work you're doing doing that is positive? You need to have that as a regular dialogue. And be careful that you don't just add, end up mindlessly adding features, because it's easy but it will take you to being a consulting company where your customers tell you what they need and you build it, and all of a sudden you become this monolithic blob, right? You have all these features and you just keep adding shit. You're like, oh, we added this because this guy said he'd quit, and we said we'd do this just once, but we'll never normally do it, or look at all the money we made off that one thing. This isn't like product purist bullshit, though. I, I do want to say like that you'll pay for all the complexity of all the extra features that no one uses. You'll pay for it in your marketing, 
Your sales team will have to explain it. Your product team has to maintain it. It's a new source of bugs. It has all this extra weight it adds to your product. So really make sure that when you're adding things, they actually are going to be used by a lot of people. That's how they pay off. Generally speaking, our phrase is, is act on your customer's behalf, not on their direct request. Two more quick points. One is just maintain your edge. So most companies, when they get past a certain point, they start to look like other companies. And the reason for this is what's called Hotelling's Law. So if you can imagine your product is on a beach and you're selling ice cream, and here's you, and people will flock to you for your beautiful, delicious ice cream. It's very easy to sell ice cream at the beach. It's so easy that if you're successful, you get rewarded with a competitor. And they will start to attract ice cream because they're closer to your customers at the other end of the beach. So what do you do? You think, shit, we're losing, customer, we're losing our customers to a competitor. You know what we should do before we lose too many of these? We should move down this beach a bit. Of course, they get that idea too. And before you know it, you end up just beside your competitor, and now everything looks the same. And this is exactly what happens to startups when they start to get obsessed about the world around them, and they start to just think that they're in a feature war with the competitors. It's called Hotelling's Law. You also see this happen in politics, by the way. If somebody expresses a popular opinion, everyone's like, yeah, I'll have that opinion too, thanks. And then all of a sudden, they all start to converge on a, on a sort of shared opinion. So beware of prioritizing the product requests that only make you look more like your competitor. Because the, when you say, we need the features they have, soon you'll have a different problem. We need to differentiate ourselves from them. And the last point I'd say is just, in all startup stuff, as your company matures, you need to be mindful of dogma. Anything that like, you have been saying for a long time, but it turns out is no longer true, either because the world has moved on, or your company is bigger than it was, or your product has moved on. All opinions that you hold in your software will cost you customers. So if you say, we're like a recruiting platform, but we're only for graphic designers, and only if they believe in dedicated landing pages, that's great. It just means that you're costing yourself all of these other users. And that can be really positive, but at some point, it'll be the thing that holds you back. Here's some real examples of things that held us back for a long time in Intercom. Let's never collect an email address up front. Let's, let's always drop straight into a chat. Or we think there's only four ways you should do permissions. Or our product should always sound like X. Or whatever, any of these types of things, they all hold you back. And when an opinion is costing you more than it's earning you, it is dogmatic. It is not valuable to your company. Your product and your company needs to be able to evolve, not preserve things that were smart eight years ago, but actually evolve. Good opinions attract you, attract you to customers. They inspire your team. They fuel your marketing. They focus your product. They simplify your product. Bad opinions make sales hard. They give sales teams things they have to sell around. They confuse your team. Not, no one's really sure why we're doing this, but you just keep saying it. Uh, they paint you into corners. They confuse your customers. It's not, it's not clear why the product works like this. I guess it's something that they think. The other piece about opinions is that they all have to expire. Very few things are genuinely true forever. So whenever you find the logic being, oh, there's a blog post that says this, or oh, back in the day we used to do this like that, you need to be willing to adapt as a company. Uh, it's OK to be a different company today than you were four, three, two, one year ago. That's what evolution is. That's how you grow. That's how you evolve. Consistency is dangerous. In fact, a foolish consistency is often phrased as the hobgoblin of a little mind, right? You want things to never change. It's a bad idea. 
Alternatively, I'd say either you kill your dogma or your dogma in turn will kill you. And that's everything I've learned about taking a product to this stage. So hopefully I'll come back next year and say more. Uh, I've been Des from Intercom. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Des.